City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How's it going, Kevin? Good, Corey. Back again this week and um, City Limits, third Wednesday, housing day and... uh, April Bragg's coming in. The last, oh, she's actually rang me this morning. She can't. She's got a problem with a grandchild she's got to look after, so she's going to ring in, but uh, she'll be ringing in in the second half of the show. In the first half, you've teed up an interview. Yep, Dr. Wendy Stone, and uh, she's from Ahuri, which is the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. Yep, but Ahuri is a town. I always thought it was, it was with RMIT at one stage. You tell me it's now with Swinburne, apparently, Yes. Okay. Yes. Swinburne University of Technology. We're going to talk to her about a report they've done on what affordable housing and all sorts of things. And yep, it's a report yeah. called "Supply Shortages and Affordability in the Private Rental Sector," which I think is something we can all uh, empathise with. Yes, and a bit of negative gearing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, a bit of the good. old yeah. negative yeah. gearing. Yeah. Look, we should mention that last week, by the way, because I was away with a cold and I've still got a bit of it hanging on, but no. I've braved my way in here this no. morning. Um, but um, and I've done been doing the weeks that we're over the phone, which is okay. You can do that and hope you don't cough in the middle of it. Mm. Um, I'm going to pour myself a cup of tea now because this stage... Do you want a cup of tea? Uh, no, thank you. No, you're, you're still in self-flagellation, eh? Oh, it's definitely. It there. Right, yeah, there we are. Okay. I'll just pour myself a cup. <laughs> right, done. Yeah. Uh, couple of what things sort of tea have <clears throat> we got this morning? We've got straight jasmine this morning. Okay. S- straight jasmine, yep. Um, and um, I'll just go to a couple of things I did want to talk about because I mentioned it out in the kitchen um, to Regan, who does the Brecky Show, um, about a story this morning about people working long hours, etc. Well, Gina Reinhardt says that if you've got a work ethic and you know the importance of work, then you can make it. You can make it big time. So, so does that um, so, apply to those sweatshop labourers who work 16 well, hours a day? Are they rich? And the $2 a day African, happy, happy Africans working for her, presumably. So, yeah, that's it. So, obviously, having a, a rich father has nothing to do with it. Mm. Um, it's just work ethic. Because she says her own kids expect things to fall from the sky, unearned things from the sky, and her own kids are being selfish, wanting unearned things from the sky. Maybe which, they're thinking acid rain if they're thinking, you know, her heritage. Yeah. <laughs> well, the acid certainly comes into it. And I suppose they could argue rain, spelled R-E-I-G-N, but who knows. Um, the, well, I was just thinking mm. the, the pollution footprint from the way that she got richer. Oh, no, she wouldn't. No, no, she wouldn't hurt the environment at all. Not, oh. no, 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 don't be silly. All right. Um, speaking of the environment, I, yes. I enjoyed the, the little story. I didn't enjoy the story. It's an awful story. But there were 54 stingrays in, a, in an exhibit in Chicago Zoo. Mm-hmm. Uh, which did all sorts of tricks, you know. They they there were four southern stingrays and fifty cow nose rays, and allows visitors to touch and feed them, etc. Mm. Um, anyway, the oxygen level dropped to the point where all fifty four died, which oh. is a tragedy. But the bit I I couldn't work this one out. The society says staff are working to get the tank's oxygen levels back to normal, and that the seasonal exhibit will remain closed for the rest of the northern summer. Now, why get it back to normal when there's nothing in it? Don't know. I don't know. That just got me lost. Anyway, that, that I just thought that mentioned that. Speaking of the US and the great logic of the US, um, Hillary Clinton has attacked China, saying it's stealing commercial secrets and huge amounts of government information and trying to hack into everything that doesn't move in America. Now, I would have thought from from a government that in fact has hacked into everything that doesn't move in America. That's you know a bit what much. this is? A this is. Much. You know what this is? They've privatised all their services and now China runs the CIA. Yeah, it must be. That's right. <laughs> this is neoliberalism <laughs> like, gone mad. When you get someone like Hillary Clinton accusing someone of hacking into everything that doesn't move in America, uh, it's just a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> okay, what about this bit of news? Uh, this is from the Australian this morning. Men happier when the miss is at home. Oh, that's right, and it should be that. Well, that's the way it should be, of course. That's, yeah. Yeah, that's. Oh, that's. Well, that's also traditional marriage, of course, and it has to be the missus too, of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, male unemployment poses a greater risk to a happen, happier marriage than a female partner losing her job. 
Does that say that when men are unemployed, they don't pick up the slack and do the chores? I think they just become all, they, they feel they feel done in. They feel that they're not doing what men should do. They've lost their macho thing and all that sort of uh, stuff. It's pretty awful, yeah. I don't know, there's a point to it. The way the that gender yeah. roles negatively affect both uh, men and women. Yes, that's right. That's right, and they all fall for it. Um, now, um, going back... Um, Clive Palmer was eulogised um, three or four years ago when he established this charity, a foundation um, tied to helping some other some charity or other. Who knows what it is? Um, anyway, a hundred million dollars foundation he promised in, in, in three or four years ago, and um, they've just done the annual report of how much is in it. Do you know how much of the hundred million dollars is actually in the account at the moment? Ten uh, percent. Hundred and four dollars. Hundred and four, <laughs> up up four from last year. It was a hundred last year. Um, but pa- Clive says the problem is that he'd he'd based he'd based the money that went into it on the royalties from the from the Citic Pacific um, company, which he was part of, and which he's now in a long legal battle with the Chinese company over. So because of that long legal battle and the fact that there's no royalties, that's the problem. So he doesn't um, have any spare money. No, and he also promised six million to over ten years to the Duke of Edinburgh's Awards Foundation. But so he's actually paid seven hundred grand there, seven hundred thousand, which is a bit more than one hundred and four, I suppose. But one hundred and four is a bit lower than one hundred million, isn't it? Just a little bit. Yeah, just yeah, a little. Just thought I'd mention that. Um, Should we go to our guest? We should. We should. Except one right, more right, thing. Just, right. I just thought it worth mentioning that Jeff Kennett fell off his bike, and uh-huh. I got a, I got a feeling it was it was Jeff showing. Showing us what he did to the people of Victoria, that uh, he did that. I think it was. I think it, it was showed, symbolic. It showed like him, but the years later, he realised. He said, "I'll show them what, how, what I did to them." And he fell off his bike, and then a footy coach fell off his bike in empathy with Jeff, uh-huh. and made the front page of the Herald Sun yesterday, which um, indicates that that was the biggest news of the day: a football coach falling off his bike. Great. Well, yeah. I've fallen off my bike, so I'm going to have to yeah, front page. Ring up the mainstream media and oh. tell them about that. Yeah, you, I've got pretty big, bad graze on my news, knee. Corey. You are big news, Corey. <laughs> big news. <laughs> I thought I've if, got a scar from ten years ago where I fell off my bike. I thought at least if Jeff hit his head, it wouldn't do any damage. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's this go to the guest. All right, all right. He's a death cult. Nothing but a death cult. Islamist death cult. The Islamist death cult. Have a look cult. at Islam in death Australia. Cult. Death cult. All these mosques the being built. Flag. This All is the halal a funds. death cult. To use this All term the money is to they dignify make. a death cult. These are the two enemies we're fighting. The communist left and Islam. Because the two are hand in hand. You mean Abbott and Reclaim Australia's anti-Muslim racism go hand in hand? Yeah, and do you know that Reclaim Australia and the United Patriots Front are organising an anti-Muslim rally on Saturday the 18th of July at Parliament House, Melbourne? That's why the campaign against racism and fascism is organising a counter-rally. We're meeting at Parliament House at 10 o'clock so we can get there first, take the steps first and show them that their anti-Muslim hate speech is not welcome in Melbourne or anywhere around Australia, not now, not ever. If you want updates on the campaign, text subscribe to 0422-726-843 to join the updates list. The campaign against racism and fascism is a 3CR supporter. So you're listening to City Limits on 3CR at 55am, maybe on 3cr.org.au. Did you know a lot of people actually podcast our show? Do they? Anyway, we have on the line Dr. Wendy Stone and... uh, She's from the Swinburne University of Technology and the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. Welcome. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for having me on. And um, today we're going to talk about your uh, very recently uh, published paper. That you weren't the um, lead researcher, but you were one of them, um, called Supply Shortages and Affordability in the Private Rental Sector, which is a, a topic I think that's close to my heart and maybe to a lot of the other listeners too. That's right. I I, uh, I should say this research, just before we get into it, was led by two of my colleagues, uh, Professor Kath Holt and um, Maggie Reynolds here at Swinburne University. And unfortunately, they're, or lucky for them, they're overseas at the moment in a way, but um, I'm, I'm a team member. And um, uh, the report funded by the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute 
uh, really raises issues about highlighting where the actual supply shortages are, so real numbers of shortages in, in private rental housing for people in different income uh, brackets. And also, um, it, it does a couple of things. It, it, it assesses over time where the shortages are and how they're tracking, and it also explores not only whether there is an actual shortage of of rental accommodation at a particular income level for groups, but who's living in that, whether that actual group is or whether they're being squeezed out by higher income earners. Okay. So we'll just start off with some um, definitions. Um, you talk about Q1 a lot in the paper. That's the poorest 20% of Australia's, Australians and um, most of them um, were not living in affordable housing, which you define as... Um, having to spend a third or more of income on housing. And then there's also severely severely unaffordable housing, which is people who have to spend more than half of their income on housing. So yep. who's in this um, Q1 demographic and is yeah, renting? That's right. Yeah, in, so, and, and just to be clear, we're not talking about social housing at the moment. We, this report focuses very much on just the private rental market. So it's not community housing, it's not public housing. It is the private rental market. And um, that Q1 um, that you mentioned, that's um, income quintile one. So we take the whole equivalised income spectrum of Australians, taking account of household size and adjusting it so it's there um, and in a usual way that's done uh, across the world. And we cut it into five and we're focusing in this report on the, the if you like, the, the, the first piece and the second piece of that income spectrum. So Q1. In Q1, the people who were missing out on affordable private rental really um, were mainly one-parent families. We had a lot of people living alone, aged under 65 years, and younger households by which we basically say people aged under 45. So um, very young adults and then uh, middle-aged adults. And also, um, quite interestingly, recent migrants are very much overrepresented among Q1 households living in unaffordable rents. Is this a discrimination problem? Um, it, it's um, partially at the edges, perhaps. If, um, I think to get the listeners... Um, up to speed with this because it's quite technical. I think of this, um, in, for my own mind, in a visual way. I think about, um, say, five pairs of, of Lego pieces that equally match. So you've got five, uh, lots of two, two bits of Lego pieced together. And so what we're looking at is the extent to which one of those pieces of Lego, which is your income bracket at Q1, actually has access to affordable housing at the same income level, which would be affordable on that measure you mentioned earlier. And we look at that across this spectrum. What we actually find that's going on for Q1 households is that there's an actual supply shortage. Quite literally, there are just not enough dwellings in the private rental sector for the number of low-income uh, low households living in the private rental sector. So what we're not doing in this report is measuring homelessness we say there's not the, the matching happening where that Q1 group is paying more than they should be, either more than 30% or more than 50%. Are, are you also measuring the quality of the housing? In this particular report, no, we don't. Um, in a lot of other work um, that we do at Swinburne and in um, partner institutions, we do look at those types of issues. And um, in, in terms of discrimination that you raised there are a couple of interesting points around that. In other research I've done, we've found that two types of discrimination are really apparent. If you take um, the example of families, uh, so that's either single parent or couple parents with dependent children, or the example of uh, fairly recent migrants, either uh, humanitarian entrants or skilled business migrants, actually, um, and students, but taking the family's example first, um, what we find is that where families want to rent, sometimes there simply isn't the rental available uh, in the right location. And so 
if they apply for housing which is actually uh, further out from amenity likelihood um, and probably um, a little bit more costly, they're actually better able to be given a house. Say a family that requires three bedrooms is competing with a higher income uh, population group in the rental market, which may not need all of those bedrooms, but has got potentially more income, more income stability, uh, fewer children. So there, um, there is evidence of a sort of systemic discrimination and certainly other research that's happening at the moment in Sydney and Melbourne starts to indicate um, in, a, in a more documented way that certainly some migrant groups miss out on uh, on the types of assistance from real estate agents and, and private landlords that would actually keep them housed. Yes. And, and of course, uh, if people are forced further out to get something that's remotely affordable, uh, studies have shown that the other costs, the costs of transport, the costs of just personal mobility, all those things, uh, increase it to a level where it becomes much more expensive than just the rent. Absolutely. There are false economies there. So... Um, and, it, and it's not it's often not a choice based sort of move. Uh, we, we know that uh, some people, even myself, I live out in the Yarra Valley. Um, I choose to um, be a bit of a tree changer. But for other people, uh, the choices aren't there for some of those reasons I mentioned that the housing just isn't available to rent or it's cheaper. But absolutely, the, the cost of transport, the cost of keeping up one or two cars, the cost of petrol. Uh, the need to travel to work or even actually missing out on work opportunities or not being able to get to that, you know, that, that shift on a Friday or whatever it is, just because of the locational distance really can uh, make what would seem on the surface to be a manageable arrangement quite unmanageable. And unfortunately for, for quite a number of households, it, in, it results in a slippage, if you like, down into... Um, greater levels of disadvantage and the need for more intensive service intervention. And in, in your report, you say that the availability of affordable housing is getting worse. What's driving that? Yeah, two things are. Um, if we focus again on Q1 and also Q2, which is income quintile two. So there, the, um, Q1 is the sort of um, the lowest 20% of income households in Australia and Q2 is uh, 20% to 40%. Um, the two, two things driving it, and they, they're actually different in each um, case. The first thing in Q1 is that there simply aren't, there simply aren't the dwellings that are built um, in sufficient numbers. And over time, um, say between 2006 and 2011, because we've used the, the census data to do this work, for Q1, there was a worsening of, of um, actual... Uh, Numbers of dwellings needed, a missing, you know, a lack of housing worsened by 60,000 dwellings. And that was up to, there is an overall shortage of Q1 rental dwellings, which is 271,000 dwellings in 2011. So are you saying that wages aren't keeping up with rent? I'm saying that the actual housing isn't being built uh, and also that Probably wages are keeping up with rents. Rents have increased because um, there's there's heat in the market. There are investors competing with renters, um, and some of the clear policy implications from this piece of work do involve thinking about the way that re- rental investors uh, can either be sort of changed in terms of the groups that are investing, and also directed through some nudging in the taxation system. Around, rent, around investing in the right types of housing that will begin to alleviate rather than worsen this situation. I can talk about that if you'd like me to. Um, yeah, I, I did notice in your implications for policy, um, you were talking about a lot of stuff like this, but I just have like an overall question before you get into that, which is um, why didn't you um, come to the conclusion that the government should build and manage more houses? And I mean, there's a, there's a bit about um, not-for-profit not providers providing more houses, but why not just um, social housing managed by the government? Yeah, um, good point, really good point. Um, well, um, this research is part of a series of projects which has been undertaken with each census in the last four censuses. So this is the fourth in a series that's focused 
on private rental markets. And just because we're focusing on this report on private rental doesn't mean that we think private rental is the, the only sector. And certainly we know, um, and I, w- I would um, feel very strongly, that there is always a role for, a very strong role for government in the provision and management of housing for very vulnerable people. The reality in our political landscape is that in every state and territory jurisdiction in Australia, there's actually a a diminishing role made by government in the actual development and provision of housing. Uh, So what we're focused on here when we're focusing more particularly on the private rental market is the way that government can play significant roles in ensuring that parts of this sector, which is the only growth sector in Australia, um, partly because of that decline in social housing, but more so because of the difficulties people have in accessing home purchase. So focusing on the the role that government has in making the private rental sector a more safe, secure, affordable sector for everybody particularly also for lower income households. On that point, there was an article in The Age, and The Age a couple of Saturdays ago had a long list, I won't read them out, but a long list of public properties the state government is flogging off to private developers uh, all over the state. And, um, of course, um, governments keep telling us whenever someone says you should get rid of negative gearing and other tax dodges for landlords that these, in fact, keep rents down. Your, Your comment on those points? Yeah, uh, we don't have evidence in... I, I can't... Well, first of all, first things first, I can't really comment on the sale of, of the public um, properties, although there are people um, who I work with um, happily it's sort of investigating, I guess, the efficacy and the, the value of doing that kind of thing and, and, and who wins and who loses in those cases. I suppose, sorry, we would argue that a lot of those properties should become public housing of some sort rather than going yeah. to private developers. That's all, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Potentially, there's a lot of, um, I think, you know, government and also uh, local government um, properties that could potentially really benefit uh, more vulnerable households, absolutely. Um, your the, the second point... Um, is about... Negative gearing, yeah. And, and, and other tax dodgers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We, again, um, um, I, I can't foresee a, a time um, in the very near future where negative gearing will be abolished. And what we talk about in this report and in other work that we do is actually changing negative gearing. So at the moment, um, investors are actually competing in the main market of, say, in... Um, let's take, I don't know, an, an example where investment... Um, and tenancy, the, the, the sort of battle to buy houses is, is moving further and further out through the suburbs, out to the outer suburbs and into regional Victoria. And this is happening nationally, the same sort of picture. But if we take Melbourne as our example, let's think about, say, um, Melton or somewhere like that, uh, Whittlesea, those areas, Werribee. Um, so investors buy up there, they take um, existing dwellings and then people who might have been able to purchase those just uh, just got in there into that home ownership market can't do it. And one of the ways we uh, argue and we've argued into the uh, Senate inquiry into housing affordability last year that this situation can be alleviated is to only allow negative gearing and to to target negative gearing into the supply of new dwellings. So this could be a real win-win-win. If investors are targeting new supply, it basically gets them out of the existing dwellings more. It creates, actually, a development chain in which there is new housing being developed and uh, it provides them an investment opportunity. So there are certainly ways that negative gearing can be, um, I guess, reined in and directed in ways that, that could actually alleviate some of this situation. Actually, the British government in its budget last week began began cutting out, um, it'll do it progressively, but cutting out negative gearing altogether. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, it will be a very different scenario um, if and when that happens completely. But for now, um, our research shows that one in seven Australian households uh, reports in the census each year, um, each time um, income from rental um, income. So it's a large number of households that would be affected if it were to be uh, removed uh, overnight and 
I, I think beginning to tailor it, beginning to think about, well, there's all this money in the system. Let's let's actually um, be smart about the way policies can actually direct that money to improve housing outcomes for tenants and other households and also uh, create some new supply in the market where we need it. Mm, definitely. Um, can you talk about um, in, uh, what it says in the report about rent assistance? I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, so rent assistance, what, what we basically find is that, um, you know, there, there are very large numbers of people in the private rental sector now in receipt of rent assistance. And I had some other figures in front of me this morning I was reading, and I think it's about, um, of the just over 2 million households living in the private rental sector, I can dig this out, but the Institute of Health and Welfare figures basically show that uh, there are more than a million of those. I think it's about 1.3 million in receipt of some level of Commonwealth rent assistance. What we find in this report, in, in our recent research, is that despite the provision of rent assistance, the actual receipt of rent assistance does not necessarily make rental affordable. Um, there, there are um, economists who debate about whether the provision of rent assistance pushes rents up or, or, or not. Uh, I don't go into this here, and, and that's beyond my expertise, but what we do know very, very strongly is that the provision of rent assistance doesn't alleviate housing poverty uh, in and of itself. It's only one branch of housing assistance that's really required for private renters to manage well. Uh, there, are, there are a raft of other measures that need to be in place for the private rental sector to be a a sort of a decent, good place for people to live. That's just one of them. And in and of itself, it doesn't... Um, it, it, it actually isn't even keeping people out of housing poverty. So as you mentioned earlier, we have large numbers of these Q1 and Q2 households who are paying even more than 50% of their relatively low income on rent each week. Um, and when we take a look at that in, in other types of ways, if we take out that after housing costs, and see what people are actually living on at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's remarkable that actually so many people remain housed. Um, it, people are doing it really, really tough, as, as I'm sure a lot of um, your listeners will understand. So is there anything else you'd like to say? I guess really um, the, the point that we haven't covered um, very much is that um, there's an interesting effect across the income spectrum. What we also I've talked about the lack of supply at the low end, there's also, um, this isn't really a policy concern for, for us in our group, but it is in the secondary way. There, there's a lack of um, housing at the very high end of the rental spectrum as well. So the very wealthiest group also don't have enough housing in the rental market. Do they have um, to live in crappy housing like the rest of us? <laughs> well, that's right. And that's not potentially such a moral dilemma, not, not such a moral issue, you might think. I think, think it's a moral <laughs> issue. I think everyone should have decent housing, even the rich. Well, it, it is in that way. But in, the, the real problem comes in insofar as Q5 households um, are then competing with the housing that would be in Q4, Q4, Q3 are competing with Q2. What happens is there's a whole lot of pressure that builds up around uh, the Q2 and Q3 rent levels, which is the sort of low to moderate part of the housing uh, rental market. So for the very low income earners and the moderate income earners are competing over and over again with middle income and higher income groups, making it extremely difficult. Okay. Um, one of the other implications of this research and other research, in particular models from overseas, is that there needs to be um, some kind of role for government in ensuring that some of that lower income rental housing remains accessible to lower to moderate income households so that they're not just bumped out of that housing. Mm. What do you think of the, um, the new plan in Berlin where they're uh, capping rents? Yeah, well, well, that's actually not just... That's, that's happened in other places, so um, this is another policy implication that we've, we've drawn out is that rent capping can, can be a terrific thing. Uh, it, it ensures that investors know what you know, their returns are going to be and there's more reliability, if you like. It takes some of the risk out of, 
out of investment. But for tenants in particular, uh, there is more security around affordability and knowing what, what could be affordable. So in Sweden, every year, the local government will decide on the rent levels for particular regions and particular housing. And uh, these are based on on consideration of market forces, but also very much based on affordability. And certainly there's scope within the Australian system to begin to introduce rent setting, um, as it's known, certainly at least for part of the sector. Well, one, of the, one of the institutional problems in the Australian context, unlike Berlin or unlike Sweden, is that we still have a rental sector that's largely um, based on investment by mum and dad investors. A new institutional environment in Australia, uh, which would be facilitated through some tax incentives and so forth, could attract larger institutional and other sort of newer investors at the low end of the private rental market. So people who are looking for an annual rapid return on their investment, but in for the longer term, who can provide some steadiness and some growth in the rental sector. So you're trying to attract free market corporations that think long-term and not just going for the short-term profit? Do they exist? And this can be um, ethical super funds, for example. Um, I think there is a lot of money out there. There's a lot of social impact investors looking for really good opportunities to invest in Australian systems, to invest in social policy and to make a big difference. And at the moment, in some cases, what we're finding is that the mechanisms for that, for that kind of money to come into programs simply don't exist. Um, but, but there is a lot of opportunity to use that, that money um, for, for those good uh, purposes, including for um, housing supply for lower-income tenants. Absolutely. I'm optimistic about that. <laughs> awesome. Shall we wrap this up? Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm really pleased to have had the chance to speak with you today about this. Yeah, thanks very much for appearing on the show. That's um, Dr. Wendy Stone from the Swinburne University of Technology, Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. Uh, hooray. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> okay, thanks, Wendy. Great. All right, we're going to go out with um, – this is Sabrina Laurie with How, How, How. And hopefully come back with April break. We will. <laughs> And that was Sabrina Laurie with Howl, Howl, Howl. And we have on the – you're listening to City Limits on 3CR, 8.55am, maybe on 3cr.org.au. And the time is 9.40. We have on the line April Bragg for Housing for the Aged Action Group who has a very snotty grandchild. Yeah, and April, um, just to cheer you up, if you might want to send some of your clients to Sydney if they can't afford housing in Melbourne because there's a, a Point Piper Harbour development advertised in the paper this week. It says, it says it's um, Australia's most exclusive address, and they do sound wonderful, but they, you can pick up an apartment starting from only 7, 7, um, 7,700,000, 7.7 yeah. 7 million. I was going to say um, <laughs> that you weren't going to say 700,000. Mm. It's always amazed me in Sydney, and um, not that I know a great deal, but um, uh, being a bit of a fan of um, home renovation programs, it always astounded me. They had, uh, you know, sort of like the fibro shacks, and um, this is going back about five years ago. And they, they would say, "Oh, and that's just sold for one point five million dollars." Sorry, what? Yeah, you have running water. Did you, so, um, did you listen to the um, interview with the Haruri Haruri report? Um, um, I only caught the um, the last bit of it. Oh, I was going to ask you if you had I, any comments, but I'm. Oh yeah. no, no, no. That's that's fine. Um, and uh, we um, did receive receive the port report, and um, and uh, some of the authors have um, presented some of that information at a couple of forums that that we we've, we've had. Um, I I suppose to to say that um, it's uh, what what we know that's happening on the ground, um, particularly low income people. Um, and particularly the cohort that we work with, older people are locked out of that um, private rental market. And one of the, um, just doing our own data, because um, uh, we're at the end of our KPMG reporting time for our project. Um, but when we first started the, the project, the number of people that we had in private rental was around about that 85% mark. And to the end of the project, so the three years, um, it's down around about the um, 45, 50%. 
Um, and of course, the, um, where people are showing up in those percentages are that they are now living with family or friends, or in boarding houses or rooming houses. So just even in our um, in our service and um, in our project, which we would say is significant but small in terms of data numbers, because um, you know it's around about 100 150 new contacts with, um, with people who are having dis- housing difficulty a month. That's that's been a, quite a dramatic trend. So I, I guess there's um, no surprises, and and again, um, you know, while the research is. Um, you know, it's good that it's actually they're saying that, but um, some of the solutions around, you know, um, investment and, mm. and um, market forces, conti- etc., and market forces, mm. and the continuation of using um, Commonwealth rent assistance, um, all of those, where all that money's going, without just putting in place a long-term um, sustainable housing plan, not just for older people, but again, particularly for our younger people who who are going to be in the private rental market, um, like. You know, no other generation has been before, probably for the rest of their lives. Mm. Um, you know, something needs to to be to be done. Um, and it's also those those issues. If um, you think that uh, the Victorian government is doing a re- review of the tenancy legislation, which is really brave of them and a really fantastic thing um, to do, but uh, to get uh, you know um, more. Um, of security for for private renters, but you know, um, yeah, you um, on that might get rent capping or um, you know standards. I, I mean, we can't even get um, standards in in private rental housing in terms of you know it's compulsory to put heaters in properties or hmm. um, you know that or you know for properties to be secure. Um, on that, uh, Premier Andrews has come out saying that um, renters should have longer leases. What do you think about that? They're talking about maybe even uh, long-term leases up to ten years. Um, well, I mean, any any um, I suppose protection that tenants can be given, and of course, um, you know that that is an in- improvement. But um, I, I guess I'd really be saying you need to look at the the core issues, and, and you know, around affordability, um, the things that people really really need. I, I mean, you can uh, long-term leases are important. But if it's um, an unaffordable rent that that you're paying and you're needing to to break the lease, um, it's it's really not going to make any difference. We, you know, people actually need to to have a secure roof over their head that they can afford and live in comfortably. Hmm. Do you so want I'm to not, talk? So I'm saying it is it is a good thing in terms of, of of protection, but it's also the issue of what happens at the end of that ten years. And for example, in that, um, when we had um, when. The Rudd gov- when um, we had the Rudd government, they um, poured uh, money into nation building and some of that um, to um, stimulate the building um, sector was building houses and all of those houses or just about all of those houses were um, uh, ended up being owned or at least managed by um, social housing providers, so housing associations. And there was a two-tiered investment. One, the um, one at a, a federal level, but the state also had ten-year um, uh, tax concessions for um, mum and dad investors, I guess, to put into that sector. Well, we're now at sort of the eight-year mark, I think, um, for for quite a lot of those properties. And so, what's the, what's the future for the for people in the next two years? Um, we we're not sure what will happen to those people because we're not what, sure whether the housing can I just ask what you mean by that in terms of when it's up, do they what what what's the responsibility of the housing groups at that point? Well that's what we don't know, Kevin, and that that's what wasn't clear at the beginning. Um we don't think it would be um because there there've been properties that have been that are owned by someone else. It's whether the housing associations um have the capacity to, to buy them. Um and that also may mean that to be able to do that they actually need government assistance to do that and given that um or Higher rents and or higher rents. Yes, well, that's right. But given that state, um, state and um, the federal government are not in the business of housing people, um, and had said to the sector, really, like within a twenty-year period, you need to be self-sufficient. Um, it would be doubtful whether they would be purchasing, assisting with the purchase of those properties. And and we know from some of the tenants that we house there. You know, going back seven, eight years ago, we know that there have been property valuations um, for the investors in the last um, 12 months. So um, we're, we're trying to, to find out what will happen to some of those people. So that's, a, so, you know, while people, and we thought at the beginning of that, yep, 10 years, <laughs> you know, it seems, seems like a lifetime. But here we are, you know, it's, um, 
and particularly some of those um, people that, um, because a lot of that, uh, a bit of that stock was family stock, and so you know those those children, and it is in outlying areas because it was where the cheap land was. Um, you know, kids are settled in school and in the areas, and you know all the things that families do. So um, hmm. that's um, that's that's a worrying worrying concept. And it wasn't as if people were able to use that housing in that 10-year period as a stepping stone because the rent was charged at um, 70% of market rent. That was the other deal that you, um, that was your return um, plus the tax investment. Um, it wasn't as if they were able to save to get into home ownership or you know, something else. So it's, um, they, they were relatively low income, low to middle income people that, you know, whose salary basically goes towards putting a roof over your head and surviving. So it's not as if they've got money to go out and do something else now. Let's talk and about... that's the short, short-sightedness of it. Let's talk about the, um, the great neoliberal saviour of housing problems, negative gearing. Um, first of all, uh, shall I explain it or shall you? It's a... No, no, you're, you're, it's a great mystery to me. <laughs> All right, so... That, that was, a, that was a, i got no idea what you're talking about, April. Just. <laughs> it's a great mystery to me. <laughs> so basically, it's a tax, it's a tax dodge. Yep. So basically, you borrow money Sorry, to buy an yep. income-producing investment, such as a, an investment property. Now, on this investment, you make a loss, and the loss you can take out of your income. So basically... The government gives you tax breaks to help with this loss, yeah. um, and that happens over quite a number of years. Um, and then eventually, say for example, when you've uh, finished paying the interest payments um, and you start making a profit, you can you can sell the property for a great big profit, and yeah, um, basically it's a it's a socialise the losses privatise the profits sort of scheme. Just to complete that point that Corey just made before you answer, um, um, April, uh, in response to Britain actually saying it's going to ease out negative gearing in Britain and it's announced in its budget last week, uh, Abbott said he's ruled out changes, warning fewer new homes would be built and rents would therefore rise. The Property Council said middle-income earners such as teachers would be hardest hit by a negative gearing windback. So... Further comments? Well, it, it's done nothing to um, make housing affordable, and it's um, the government, as we know, hasn't touched it because it would mean um, we would have um, far more homeless citizens, and there would be an outcry um, about about housing. So, um, and government would need to take responsibility. But um, what I found interesting was instead of people investing in new houses, ninety percent of these people yeah. who are doing negative gearing are investing in, in houses that already exist and turning them from houses that people buy into houses that people rent. So there's yes. not actually new housing stock being made out of this. Yes, and, it, and it's more because of the capital gain that people get in those established areas rather than the outer areas where new housing is being built. And the price, um, I suppose, say, I, I still think the prices are incredible given the, the location because we're still talking about three hundred, four hundred thousand, 400,000. Mm. But they tend to stay at that level. So if you're actually looking at making it, apart from your tax incentive, um, making a killing... Um, at, at the end of that, um, as you would in a you know established public cluster, in that that's not going to happen. Hmm. So and, and yeah, that I mean that's why people don't don't do it. I guess um, I don't know why people. Hmm. <laughs> but it's it's one of it's one of like negative gearing's part of a, a package. But there are there are packages of government housing assistance which all end up in the pockets of landlords or developers. Yeah. None yes. of which none of which goes to actually help those who need a roof over their head, where the money ought to be going. Yes, so that, and and it could go into capital works. Mm. Good God! I mean, it could go into building. Good heavens! And, mm. and given the, the the availability, well, in Victoria anyway, availability of land and who owns that land, um, it's um, it can be done. With, or you know, it's fairly. Um, low expense. Well, the state could set up its own construction authority, That's employ the workers, employ apprentices, and I save lots that. of money. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> we used to have that, didn't we? We did, yeah. There was a, the, housing, the housing commission had its own construction yeah. authority, yeah. Well, that, that, that's right, and design units and... Day, you yeah. know, and labour force as well, which um, and people are still housed very securely in in a lot of that housing stock and 
you know, with the quality of life. So, um, but but it, but it, you know, it's interesting. I've been mean, talking about the Housing Commission. I even remember um, because I'm so old that. Mm, um, you to say what a in, memory. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. In terms of. Um, you know, people um, securing their own housing that um, under the tax system you're able to claim the interest on your mortgage. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you yeah, know, so, right. so that so that to get into the, I mean, it's before all the speculation and it was easier to to access home ownership. Um, you know, even you know, as a as a you know young person working, um, but they they were you know um, that certainly those type of things took the heat out of the market as well. Mm. So, but in terms of in terms of supply, if the, if the government did, um, I, just in some of Wendy's report, um, I mean, if the government actually, because there isn't enough um, housing stock, including rental, private rental housing stock, um, if government was committed to um, building housing, then that takes the heat, some of the heat out of that out of that market. I mean, we know that we're never going to have enough, you know, public housing, but but it also, um, you know, takes the the, the pressure off. That, that part of the market as well, including home, uh, including um, the issues around home ownership. It sounds like people would lose profits. Well, it depends what you want in life. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most people, when they think about housing, think about the profit they're going to make. I, I mean, it's like when you when you do own a property and all the propaganda that's in the paper about you know how much your property's worth and how wealthy you are, um, but you actually have to live somewhere. So mm, that's <laughs> I right. Know, it's, that's it's right. It's, it's meaningless if it's the only property Absolutely. you've got. Because you, if it, once you sell it, you've got to buy something else. So well, what the hell? You've got to buy something equally yeah. as expensive. So yeah. it's not that you can cash right. in. It's, it's more an inheritance. Mm. <laughs> inheritance envy, I guess. Mm. So it's just a, a nonsense argument. Um, or, or it allows people to you know, borrow against it for, for other reasons with more debt. I mean, it's heavily debt-laden whole society. Either way, the banks come out on top. Yes, all of that, Kevin. I mean, you talk about established houses and people investing and renting and buying and all of that, you know, just that same property and the, and the turnover. Who, I mean, it's only banks that ever make the – and lawyers that make the profits out of that, out of, um, that, out of the housing system that way. Hmm. Um, April? Yes. What do you think of the $4 billion that was spent in rent assistance in 2013-14? Do you think that was well spent? Um, well, I mean, people need as much assistance, monetary assistance as they can to, to be able to pay um, private rental. And it certainly doesn't help them do that because we, we know, um, people, you know, there, there are high levels of rental arrears in, um, in private rental for low-income people. And again, the issue of people not being able to assess it. So we do need to, to financially support them, but we need a longer-term plan to better use that money, and as you said before, Kevin, all the money that's actually invested in um, houses through, you know, tax incentives or, or you know, Commonwealth rent assistance, if that money is looked at being able to um, put housing on the ground and used in that way, um, and that's why, you know, we surely need to start now with all the with all the discussion that's happened around housing, about the housing bubble, um, generations of, of our kids not ever going to own their own houses. Um, going to be stuck in um, high private rental for the rest of their lives, with that going up and up and up, and their wages not keeping up. We have to we have to um, really embark on a long term housing strategy that looks at the best use of those mm. finances. An old one we go through every month, I think, April. But yes. a couple of Saturdays ago, the Age had an article where it talked about some of the properties the state government's flogging off to the private sector. Uh, and some of these prices sound pretty cheap. I'll go through. I won't. I'll, I'll truncate it very much. But it sold the police station in Lara for one hundred and ninety thousand. Block of land in Werribee for one hundred and sixty. Former Mackenzie Creek Primary School twenty five and a half. Um, close to concluding a three hundred and fifty thousand sale of a vacant square two thousand six hundred square metre block in Ballarat. And then the other places it's flogging off are in Traralgon, um, Geelong. Uh, Nor Lane, which is near Geelong as well. Police stations in Castlemaine, Fairfield, Golden Plains, Hayfield, Sales, Seymour, mm. Tura, part of the Bendigo Psychiatric Hospital, Gasworks in Morwell, uh, school sites in uh, Deer Park, um, um, in Calder, in Keelor, in Keelor Primary School, Ruthven Primary School, Lionville in Hepburn, uh, Glenn Thompson, parts of the Grampians in Wangaratta, a whole list of them. Uh, now, these are none of these are going to end up in 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 public hands and could well be used as 
as, as public housing, couldn't they? Well, certainly. As we keep saying are. every month. Yeah, that, and, and that's right, because if you actually own the land, it costs you, you know, next to, to nothing to to build. And all of those areas that, that, that you mentioned, I mean, any of those areas, it, they all need housing. I mean, in the country areas, I know that the department says, well, there isn't any take-up and there's nobody, nobody on the waiting list. But that's because there's actually no housing there at the moment, rather than, you know, say, doing a warranted needs of what's in the area. Like, we know in um, country areas where... You know, people have lived on on farms for, for years, but as they're aged, they, they can no longer sustain that and have moved into town paying high private rents. Because in um, rural and regional areas, rents are, uh, you know, they're no cheaper there. Um, so every every municipality can benefit from um, having public housing built. And if you've got the land, um, and it seems to me if you're selling off a block of land for 160000 in Werribee, it's not going to do anything to the state coffers. You Someone's going to make a lot of money out of it, I would have thought. Well, that's absolutely <clears throat> We're going to have to wind up, unfortunately. Time's caught right, up done. with us, April. But look, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to admit to Corey that we do admit our mistakes on this program, and we, did it, we didn't even say that you were from the, uh, the Housing with the Aged Action oh. Group, but that's who you are, so we'll, we'll back announce <laughs> you as you go off. Um, no but look, thanks Thank for calling you. in. Hope your grandchild's okay. Yep. And yeah. um, and we'll talk to you next month. Thanks. Okay. Thanks, thanks, thanks April. Bye. Uh, always a cheery day, oh, housing day, isn't it, Corey? Isn't it? Isn't it? Hopefully, people are crying in their kitchens as usual. Oh, if they have a kitchen. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All their gutters. If they got a gutter, they got something in their ear hole. Don't listen to us, I suppose. <laughs> All right. So, so you're listening to say City goodbye, Kerry. Next week's the fourth Wednesday. And we've got uh, Corey. Uh, we've got. What are talking about? Uh, we've got next week. We've got. Um, you've got. We've got Ipswich. We're going to look at Ipswich, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to have a look at the um, toxic waste dump in Ipswich. Wow, that's a long way from Melbourne, but it's. it's it's related to things here as well. Yeah, um, which they've um, thoughtfully put on a floodplain. Very good. Mm, very, very good. All right, um, so you're listening to City Limits on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR.org.au. We're going to go out with Rothko with a negative for Francis. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia, on the Kulin Nation. For more information and to find out how you can support 3CR, go to www.3cr.org.au.